This is the Nielsen Norman Group UX Podcast. I'm Therese Fessenden. This episode feels a bit like time travel because all of you will be tuning in in 2022 while I'm recording here in 2021 and also am mentally stuck in 2020, the year that never seems to end. But nonetheless, 2022 lies before us. And this time of year often beckons us to reflect on the past and to consider what the next year will hold. So I think it was pretty great that I got a chance to do that with the folks at User Interviews who host another great podcast called Awkward Silences. In this episode, you'll hear me speak with hosts Aaron and JH. And we get into the weeds about how user research has changed over the past couple years, and also how in many ways it hasn't changed at all. We discussed some innovative solutions to pandemic-fueled research constraints, shifts toward inclusive and ethical research, and how researchers can further shape their own careers as they look forward into the next year. So with that, here are Erin May and J.H. Forrester. All right, well, thanks for joining us. We've got Aaron and JH with us from Awkward Silences, which is very exciting. Uh, how are you guys doing today? Uh, nice and awkward. I'm ready. <laughs> yep. Yeah, uh, doing well. Awesome. Yeah, so uh, you guys host this awesome podcast at User Interviews called Awkward Silences, which can we just say that title is excellent, especially <laughs> when your main topic is about interviews and research and things do, in fact, get pretty awkward. But but really celebrating that, you know, I, I think is great. So that said, though, you're you're more than podcast guests. And I think it's important, you know, to share what you do and like the important roles that you currently play at user interviews. Yeah, you want me to jump in here? Um, do it. So I can take it. So I'm, uh, I'm JH. Uh, I head up the product team at user interviews. So product management and product design. And I've been with the team now for a little over four years and you know, started as the only person doing all of those things. And right now we have a team of eight with a couple open recs, so we'll be at 11 soon. And so, yeah, really just trying to figure out you know, what our users need and how we can deliver that in a way that also lines up with our business goals and you know, doing the standard product thing and trying to make sure there's a lot of research as a part of that as well. Yes, yes, of course. And I mean, naturally, the, the brand is very much research. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, similar similar story to JH. I joined just a few months after he did, about four years ago. Uh, was a marketing team of one for a year. Fast forward four years, I've got a marketing team as well as a growth team, which kind of sits at the intersection of marketing and product. We've got growing teams on both sides, hiring more. So definitely, you know, check out our careers page and join us. It's been a lot of fun, and it's been great to incorporate user research into the work that we do, both on the marketing and growth team, uh, and learn a lot about the practice by doing it. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah. And I imagine that being that your user base is a lot of UX researchers, you probably have a really good sense of what is kind of current in terms of UX research trends. So what would you say is the biggest change that you've seen over the last few years since you guys have joined? It's a good question. Uh, I mean, I'll take COVID out because obviously that's been like, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if I can take it out, but obviously that's changed a lot of things in a number of ways, especially in the last year or two. The one that came to mind for me first is I feel like when we really started the podcast and we were talking to people, you know, a few years back, 
there was a lot more concern or discussion around how you kind of prove the ROI of research. Like, how do you try to quantify it and, and do that? And I think there's been a little bit of a shift where there's like more acceptance or belief that research is valuable in like these intangible and kind of difficult to measure ways. And so I, I've heard a little bit less of that from the people we speak to and more kind of shifting towards like the practicality or the pra- pragmatic side of like, well, then how do we do research in a way that fits into our processes or, you know, um, has the right turnaround time or is really focused on specific decisions and not just generalized type things. So there, there's something there that I've, that I've seen a bit over the last few years. I don't know, Aaron, if you would agree. I definitely agree. I think, you know, when you think of the sort of maturity spectrum, it's certainly matured. There's certainly more UX, more UX research happening, um, which means people are now talking about research ops and research impact and not do we need this at all, but how do we get more out of it? So without a doubt, that's definitely happening. Um, I think another thing that's happening is just an emphasis on uh, this because of COVID, because of um, social justice issues and a lot of things happening in the world and, you know, tech's uh, undeniable importance and role in the world we live in. There are a lot of overdue conversations happening about diversity, equity, inclusion, ethical design. Um, that's It was not not happening four years ago when I joined user interviews, but it is happening a lot more now and you're starting to see real action um, come out of it. So that's been great to see as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And and actually thinking about that, you bring up an excellent point, which is that UX has really evolved as a practice and as a field, not just in how we do design, but also in how we run research and the fact that research is, is now valued in you know a much greater way. But it is interesting to hear too that that you're seeing this trend toward inclusive research, it sounds like. Um, so yeah, could you share a little bit about that? Like what are some of the shifts that really help to make uh, research more inclusive? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's as with the sort of maturity of the field in general, there's the awareness and then there's, right, there's this progression of, okay, I've I've recognized that I have an issue or that there's something I need to do here. Okay, now what am I going to do about it? So I feel like we're at the stage where uh, it's commonly known and recognized that there are major gaps in terms of inclusion and accessibility, and that there are some great examples of companies who are doing this really well. And there are now more and more apps and tools that are making it easier to make your product more accessible. So there's less and less of an excuse to not do it. Mm-hmm. And I think also there's more of an emphasis on progress over perfection, right? Like Mm. you're not going to get called out for doing an imperfect job of trying and that advocates for accessibility and inclusion will recognize your positive attempts to do better uh, and not sort of call you out for being imperfect. And so I think much as sort of agile and sprint and these kind of methodologies of just get a little bit better all the time apply to how we build products. They also apply to how we make our products more usable, more inclusive, more ethical. Yeah. I think an interesting example comes to mind of something that we kind of did almost as an experiment was, hey, when companies are running a lot of research on our platform, we have all this data about who they're talking to, um, you know, demographics, location, characteristics, all these different things. And we went out uh, in kind of, you know, very manual way to ask some of those teams like, hey, if we generate generate a report for you, it kind of shows a breakdown of like who your team's talking to. And if there's any, you know, trends or over indexing in certain areas, like, you know, so you can help correct that, like, would that be useful? And we got a really tremendous response from that. So we haven't like productized it yet. But just in terms of like pulling those reports manually and, and generating them for folks, there was like a real 
strong, positive reception to that in a way that, you know, I don't know if a few years ago, if we'd done that, if it would have landed the same way. That's awesome. And I do think you guys are in a really unique position where you do have all that excellent data, not just with like one company, but with many companies who are using your platform to basically recruit and organize and essentially execute the studies in many cases. Um, So I guess thinking about the way people are executing studies, I imagine, I know you mentioned that we're kind of ruling out COVID, but but what have you seen in terms of in-person versus remote studies? I I know that for a while we couldn't even do in-person studies, uh, but what are you seeing nowadays? It's coming back a bit. I mean, we see that in our data, right? So there was a period where when COVID really first happened, and you know, that February, March period, at that time, probably like maybe 40% of our projects, our our sessions were for in-person studies. And then, you know, as the two-week lockdown is going to fix everything (laughs) uh, phase Mm -hmm. came out, you know, that basically went away. Like there were just none. And we didn't really know what was going to happen. So it was kind of a scary time for us as a business. Like, is that going to shift to online or not? And um, what was interesting was, you know, you saw some people that were kind of staunchly against, you know, remote research of, oh, you don't get the same, you know, camaraderie or rapport and you can't go as deep. Um, you know, trying it out out of necessity. And I think a lot of people have actually come to find that there are some benefits to it and uh, and are probably going to stick with it as one of their tools going forward, even if they do bring back in person, you know, to some degree. Um, so I think lately it's it hasn't come back as strongly. I think the some of the advantages of remote in terms of being able to, you know, reach more geographies, get things scheduled a little bit faster because you don't have to wait for somebody to, you know, travel to your office or go to them or, or whatever, you know, the methodology requires. And so, um, yeah, it, it's coming back, but it doesn't seem like it's going to come all the way back to what it was before. I don't know, um, Aaron, if you have any other trends. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right with all things COVID where, the, you know, we we're forced into remote basically everything. And a lot of people realized the advantages of that who maybe hadn't explored remote research as much before. Um, but now we're in a period of now there is more choice. Obviously, things are not back to where they were in terms of everything being fully open and fully safe and whatnot. But there's there's more option than there was when everything was remote. And everyone's just reevaluating everything, right? Like, what has served us well about this remote thing we were forced into? Uh, what have we missed by not being able to test our physical products together in person? You know, there are cases where it's obviously much more important to have that option. And another thing I'll tell you, you know, I heard this from a researcher, which is, you know, I, w- I won't say who it was, but I, I wonder how much this happens in the market as well, where, you know, many companies have invested in very expensive labs mm-hmm. um, for in-person. And there's a feeling of, we got the budget for this. We need to use it, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And um, so, I I don't know how much that happens, but I, I I know that things like that do happen too, where um, you want to make use of the budget um, and of the decisions you've already made uh, for in person. So you know, I think there's a recalibration for sure happening, and my assumption is that uh, remote will remain a larger percentage than it was before the pandemic, but less than it was, you know. In, when it was the only option. Yeah. yeah. You, do, you do see people doing really cool and clever things. Like, you know, ingenuity certainly comes out Absolutely. of stuff like this. Like, um, you know, companies that are doing stuff with physical products, you know, shipping stuff to people so that they can have it in their hands while they're talking to them remotely. Or, um, you know, people working on mobile apps, having people do the kind of like bear hug the laptop thing so that your screen is in front of the webcam and they don't have to install any other software. They can still just, you know, hop onto Zoom in their laptop and then hold their phone in a certain way so that you can uh, see what they're doing and how they use apps. Like people, you know, people are really clever. So that's been cool to see as well. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it the, I guess with a pandemic, we are all inevitably challenged to work within some of these constraints and still try to gather data so that we can make 
inform decisions about whatever it is we're designing. Uh, but I'm curious why this shift toward remote, like what about this shift to remote seems like it'll be something that'll stick around for good? Well, we're in the the recruiting business, right? We help help people find the very best participants that meet whatever needs they might have. And remote just makes finding the participants you need so much more within reach, mm-hmm. um, you know, depending on what you're looking for. But if you take the geographic constraints out of it, it, it just means now you can talk to anyone in the world, anyone in the country who, depending on what you're looking for, maybe you have very specific criteria that are not geographic in nature. Um, now you can talk to all of those folks. Now you can get a wider swath of people to talk to, right? If you're building an app that's designed for every English speaker you know, in, in the world, um, and you're only talking to people who live in New York because that's where your company is based, you know, you're not getting a good sampling of whatever biases or whatever um, usability issues, whatever it might be that are are in your product because you're only talking to people who live in New York who are wonderful people. I'm from New York, but are not <laughs> necessarily representative of every English speaker in the entire world. So why, good save there. You know, fellow New Yorker up here. Yes. <laughs> why represent. do all our participants talk so fast? Yes. Um, the things I would add maybe just quickly are, uh, I think some of the other advantages, like you, you mentioned the lab stuff, Aaron, is if you're doing it remotely, like, you know, you can just record the video as long as you get consent and people are okay with that. And now you can just splice it up and you have these great artifacts of, you know, you have the person there saying it in their own words where to do that in a lab setting is, you know, a little bit more involved in terms of how you set up the camera and audio and everything else. Um, so I think that's just like simpler and, and more accessible for lots of teams. Um, I think incentive wise, like obviously you still want to pay people a fair incentive and value their time. But when you're doing it remotely, you're not baking in like the time that they have to travel to get to your office, like both ways. And so, you know, if you're talking to them for an hour, you can kind of just incentivize them for that hour. You don't have to, you know, pad it a little bit because they have to, you know, leave their work day in the middle of the day and come down for half hour, you know, in transit, talk to you and then get back to their job, right? So you're going to have to pay more to do that for in person. And so Mm -hmm. you can do a little bit more with your budget. You get like, I think these better artifacts in some ways if you're using the recording tools. So some of those things I think are real advantages. And I think what people were afraid of was that like, oh, it's going to be awkward. I'm not going to be able to have the same level of connection. I'm not going to be able to get people to open up or share. And I think, you know, being forced to do it, I think people, a lot of people found like, oh, we can, we can still develop good conversational techniques such that these online sessions feel, you know, really productive. Yeah. And people are used to Zoom now. You know, it used to be we would, you know, have researchers complain a lot more about, you know, this participant, they don't know how to use Zoom. They don't have, that doesn't happen as much anymore. (laughs) Everyone knows how to use Zoom now. Um, So just the, the sort of comfort with using these remote tools has gone way up. So it's just easier to use them. Um, no show, no show rates are tend to be better. Um, you know, it's easy to join. It's easy to find a replacement, um, you know, in the last minute when you're doing remote. So there's just, it's just easier. Uh, that being said, it's not always the best way to go, but it does make life a whole lot easier. The other thing that surprised me, I heard a researcher say is, you know, you think if you're doing like, let's say, field ethnography kind of research or um, having someone come into your lab, you know, you have someone come into their lab, they're obviously not in their natural context. Um, right. But if you're talking to them where they live, where they reside, yes, like maybe it's a little invasive, but they are in their natural habitat and you, you might get more authentic and natural sort of insight that way, which is a nice kind of benefit as well. So we're a remote company. We are you know, into remote. Um, so definitely think there's tons of tons of pros to remote research. 
Yeah. The the other thing that comes to mind with just the whole pandemic dynamic with research is we definitely heard from researchers that they've had to bring a little bit more like empathy or understanding to the conversations just because everyone is so kind of shot and burnt out from the whole thing of mm-hmm. I don't have childcare, I'm stuck in my house, you know, I'm worried about my loved ones. Like there's just been a ton of stress and a lot of disruption for everyone. And so when you're talking to somebody, even something about something maybe like typically casual, like some consumer app or something that is, you know, low stakes, you're going to these sessions and people are like just happy to have somebody to talk to and, and kind of offloading some of that stress or venting a little bit. And so, um, you know, there's a little bit of meeting people there and being supportive of it, but then also on the researcher side, taking some time for yourself to recover and not kind of absorbing all that trauma and stuff and, you know, making sure you have some of your own self-care. So we've definitely heard that type of trend from researchers as well. Yeah, totally. And, and I do think the ability to take a breather is something that I always recommend whenever I'm talking to other researchers who are like, how much time should I dedicate? And it ends up being like, uh, oh, well, we, we got we got hour long interviews, so we can just stack them all. And I'm like, well, you might want to <laughs> have mm-hmm. at least a solid 15, 30 minutes at a minimum 15, more like 30 minutes in between to just just gather yourself because it can be real a really intense uh, session, whether that's usability testing or interviews. So absolutely agree. Yeah. So when when thinking about, you know, what has changed versus like what has stayed the same, like what do you think is is kind of not changed in a remarkable way or an unremarkable way? <laughs> well, the fundamentals haven't changed, um, right? Uh, good research starts with good research questions, followed mm-hmm. by, you know, a good research design, good recruiting, good moderation, uh, good execution, good analysis, all that. None of that's changed. So that that's what comes to mind, I guess, for me first. You know, the, the fundamentals have not changed. They've become more accessible. Um, that would be a, a difference. I think there's just there's so many more communities, education, content, uh, particularly with remote that have made it uh, more accessible to get those fundamentals right. Uh, but the fundamentals haven't changed. Yeah, my mind went to the same place of just yeah. like, you still need to make sure you're doing research for the right reasons. And you have a clear question or decision you're trying to make. Uh, you still got to talk to great people. So that you're like, learning the right things from a representative sample. Yeah, uh, I think the way you described it, Aaron, was, was pretty spot on. Yeah, and that idea of, you know, having the right reason to do research, like I, I can even think of a couple times where others are, you know, have come up to be asking what's the appropriate method uh, if if someone wants to get feedback about like an application or mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Uh, a website. And um, sometimes I get asked like, is an interview a good method for that? And it's like, well, if you're if you're going to talk about something that people aren't looking at or using, then mm-hmm. you know it might not actually end up being an objective uh, observation, or you know it, it might not necessarily be the most helpful feedback. But if you were to maybe do a usability study or do some more direct observation, then then maybe you'll learn a bit more. So I I totally agree. I think the fundamentals of figuring out what it is you want to learn, and then structuring your study in a way that helps you to really answer those questions, uh, even if it means what you ultimately ask isn't the same question, you know, structuring your your interview or your your interview questions or your tasks in a way that allows you to really get at the truth. I think that's, that's absolutely, yeah, still the same and uh, holds true no matter what, a timeless, a timeless yeah. practice. Yeah, it truly is. I don't think that will ever change. The methods will change, the speed will change, the recruiting, you know, the details will all change, but the fundamentals won't change. Yeah. And it's a lot of, I think it's a lot of the fundamental, like the upfront fundamentals, like, you know, what is the question we're trying to answer? What is the best methodology for that? Who needs to be involved? You know, 
is there a timeline where like we can get this done so, such that it's going to impact the decisions that other teams are making or, you know, we're going to miss the boat. Like, I, I do think a lot of that upfront planning, which doesn't mean it has to take a long time or you have to do it way in advance, but like getting a couple of those things right from the start, like puts you on the right trajectory. Otherwise, you, like you really drift off. You know what I mean? So like if you're thinking about like an arrow going off in space, if at the start it's a little couple degrees off, it seems close, but then like you go forward a little bit and it's veered way off. It's It's like that type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess related, you know, if, if we're, we're thinking about some of the mistakes or maybe some of the pitfalls that researchers may be making, you know, maybe that's planning the study or running the study. I mean, personally, I've seen a lot of mistakes can be avoided <laughs> if there's good planning, but absolutely, I'm curious, yeah. like what you've seen. I think, um, you know, just to not hit the planning stuff, since we were just doing that a little bit, I, I'll, we can come back to that. But um I think when people are in the studies, sometimes not having like the right level of flexibility or responding to change in a way that they should, right? If, if you're showing, if you're doing like a usability study and you're showing, you know, a new prototype or something to people and giving them a task to complete and like the first two or three people are like bombing it and it's not even close <laughs> and you were planning to talk to like six or seven, you probably should make some changes like mid, you know, mid study before you talk to the rest of the people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And like, sometimes people don't do that because it's like, well, we said we we're going to talk to seven people for this. And like, we got four more to go. So let's do it. So like, or, you know, being really strict on a script of questions and and not having a little bit of like improv and, and space to explore th interesting things that are coming up. So I think like in the study, sometimes can people can be rigid in ways that's counterproductive. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, we're lucky to get a lot of kind of newer researchers and people starting out using using user interviews, uh, hopefully because we've made it easy to get started and um, and that sort of thing. But we, we do get folks who kind of will, you know, launch a recruiting project and then um, talk to our support folks and say, now, how do I do this research? <laughs> um, so, you know, I would just say, uh, A, we have lots of great resources and as does NNG on, on how to do great research and their wonderful communities and you know, Google just launched a, a Coursera course on UX, you know, tons of great resources uh, to figure out how to do research. But, you know, recruiting is a great place to go wrong, I would say, you know, and not uh, many researchers get it right, certainly, but you you will not get good insight from bad fit participants. You just won't. And um, depending on what you're trying to learn and how niche your product is, uh, the specificity that you need uh, from those participants may vary widely, but and depending on if you're doing you know, discovery or usability, depending on lots of different things, what you really need will vary. But uh, if you're not talking to the right participants, you're not going to get good insights. And I, you know, I think there are definitely researchers out there that uh, don't don't spend enough time thinking about who is the person that's going to have the insight that I need to learn something, and how do I go find them? Um, so. Yeah. Another lesson that comes to mind that I learned early in my career, kind of the hard way, I was, you know, a recent college grad and setting up to um, do an unmoderated usability study through, a, you know, online tool and built out the whole thing and all these different prompts and stuff. And I was like, really excited about it. And so I just like fired away. And I was like, all right, I'm gonna get 10 people to do this. And I got 10 people to do it really quick. And I went through those and I had messed something up in like the first prompt. And so it didn't make sense. And everyone misinterpreted it. And like every single one was bad. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a UX researcher on the team at the time, uh, Kirk, shout out Kirk, if you're listening to this, um, <laughs> who told me afterwards, he's like, you got to test the test. Like you have to like, you got to QA it. You got to make sure that, you know, the thing you're doing is actually going to work, um, whether that's with one external participant to start or, you know, have somebody internally do it or come to it with fresh eyes yourself. And, you know, in, in just my excitement to get rolling, I just like, you know, fired away and it like <laughs> totally didn't work uh, as a result. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I, I totally agree. 
Um, and I, I do have to say, like having used your platform a couple times, like you guys do make it really easy to figure out like who's a good fit and and who isn't. And I do think that's a really fundamental like first step uh, to kind of talk to your point, Aaron. And, you know, especially when you you do have like, for example, I had one project fairly recently where there was like a huge variety of people I needed to interview. And it was it was a lot. But, you know, it was also important for me to get, you know, a couple people in this particular role, a couple people in that particular role. And if I hadn't spent you know, about four to four to eight weeks just on ensuring I had the right kinds of people. I, I think I wouldn't have gotten the richness of insights I needed. But yeah, JH, to your point also, uh, that pilot, and I actually did have like a little pilot session where I basically ran the study with two people, um, or I ran the interview with two people. And in that interview, I, I figured out a whole bunch of like, oh, yeah, that's not worded well. <laughs> or mm-hmm. uh, this this needs to be, uh, we need to prioritize these questions better. So we really mm-hmm. need to refine this. So, uh, so absolutely, that pilot study is going to make things a lot easier for the rest of the study. And and I do think it's a good way to be like iterative about your your research practice. So yeah, excellent points. And you can also test the tests often yourself or with a coworker. You, you know, it doesn't even have to be with real participants you've recruited. Um, mm-hmm. A lot totally. of time, it's just silly mistakes you you didn't catch or things like that. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I guess I'm curious. Now, you know, looking into like the next year, you know, what do you think researchers should be mindful of? You know, as they are refining their practice. Maybe there's stuff that maybe new folks should consider, some stuff that maybe more UX research mature folks uh, could consider. Uh, could you offer some advice uh, for folks looking into the new year? Hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's something for folks. Um, if, you're, if you are embracing you know, online research in whatever form you're doing it, um, but let's think about you know, some sort of video, whether it's moderated or unmoderated, um, and you're recording it and getting those artifacts, definitely like would encourage people to look into all the great tools that have emerged around how you can like splice those up and, you know, atomicize them and get all these different insights for future uh, use. And so I think there's like a wide selection of tools across some of the research repository tools. Some of the video tools themselves offer this stuff. There's other ones that kind of like work with any video tool like Grain. But being able to like chop up those highlights in an easy way is is really helpful. And I just know for myself, like two years ago, when I was doing some of this with people on my team, we were downloading stuff, we were trying to do it in QuickTime, we were messing with like, iMovie, and it was like, it just felt like a like mm-hmm. a burden. And now there's things that like in my browser, I'm just like dragging stuff around and I have like a whole thing processed in like 15 minutes and it's it's crazy. So if you're not using those tools, I would strongly uh, recommend taking a look at them. Yeah, absolutely. And actually you bring up a great point. Like I've seen a lot of research done where there are these excellent artifacts where you got participants who consent to have their video recorded and they understand that it's gonna be used internally. And once we've got that consent, we've got essentially a gold mine of information that kind of sits unused in a lot of organizations. Like maybe we write about it in a short research deliverable, but I often find the best way to get buy-in for research is to actually show people the clips, like show people what people are saying. And it doesn't have to be the entire interview or the entire usability test. It could be a uh, you know, 15 second snapshot or one minute snapshot or basically a, a short clip of what actually happened there. So totally agree. Yeah, 
Um, I think in terms of, of advice, I'm always, I don't like to give advice. And <laughs> I'm just a person trying my best over here, but here I go. Um, I think, you know, with the great resignation and with it being, you know, who know the economy's all sorts of stuff's happening. I just read my New York Times said uh, like the worst inflation in a generation. And oh, yeah. I don't know what the Fed's going to do and interest <laughs> rates. And I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not going to predict that. But right now it is a labor's market and it is, a, you know, it's a good time to be, uh, if you're in a position to do so, to to be demanding conditions that make you happy at work, whether that is salary or benefits, whether that is standing up for something you believe in and the sort of ethics front, whether it's more tooling and resources, you know, whatever it might be, if you have experience and talent and care and drive, I mean, it is a good time to find a good job for yourself. So I would say seize, seize the moment, seize the zeitgeist and, you know, do your best work. It's a good time to do it. Yeah. And, and- to that point too, if you are, you know, maybe crafting your current role, right? Like I think we're in a great position now where we can essentially work to create the lifestyles that we want to have. And uh, I do think our field is unique in that we are often capable of doing it at home and and to continue doing it at home. But I'm also thinking too, like just thinking about what you mentioned earlier about inclusive research, right? Now we're going to be talking to people all over the world uh, with, with remote studies. And, and I think that's great, but it also means that we're probably going to be working weird hours, right? Cause we're, we're doing interviews with people in the Philippines, uh, people in, um, you know, Europe and, and that means working strange hours, but we don't have to work long hours if we work strange hours. And, and I do think there's, uh, an important, basically it's important to defend your boundaries and yeah, keep yourself sane. And, and really when I say practice self-care, I mean, you know, take care of yourself and do make sure that you're, you're working a sustainable, uh, in a sustainable way. So totally. Yeah. And agree. I'm glad you brought up self-care because, you know, we had Vivian Castillo on the show a while ago and she's really advocated for this. And I think we've also moved the dialogue forward on self-care where I think it used to be, you know, go to the spa and massage, you know, that kind of thing. Nothing wrong with any of that, of course, but of course. really it's about creating boundaries. You know, it's about saying no, about saying this is what I need to not get burnt out and to bring my full self to work and all of that. And I think that's where we are in the self-care conversation, which is great. That that ought to be hopefully accessible to a lot of people to to create better boundaries for themselves. And to your point, maybe I'm working weird hours. Maybe I don't need to do that every day. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 I think um, when you are like in a remote role, like for yourself working that way, I, I say this to my team a lot. Like I think there's kind of two ways of doing it. There's kind of like basic mode where you do nine to five and you figure out some ways to set boundaries there. So, you know, you work in a different place of your house or, you know, you take your slippers off or, you know, you do something right to like demarcate the, the day and try to hold yourself mm-hmm. to that and, and turn off. Um, but I think there's also kind of like the advanced mode where kind of what you're describing where you can get into working strange hours be out of necessity because you know you need to talk to somebody in a different location or it works better with your life that day and like you have that flexibility now um and i have found that it's you know it's you got to be mindful of like the total <laughs> amount you're working and boundaries and stuff but i really like that version like i was up early this morning because my kids were up and got a you know hour of work done from like seven to eight and then i kind of started my day late so i could go out for a run when the sun was up and 
you know, other days I wrap up early and then I'll close out my inbox while I watch a TV show at, you know, the end of the night. And so like, I, I like that flexibility, but it, it can be a slippery slope if you're not good about being mindful about like how much you're working and, and keeping like a balanced ledger, so to speak. Yeah. Sometimes you got to set up boundaries for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, this has been fun and inspiring. And I, I think I learned a lot both about what the current state of research is, as well as, you know, what's really going to take research to the next level uh, in the year forward and maybe years to come. Uh, so yeah, thanks for being here with us today. If you have, um, do you have social media channels or uh, other places you could point people to? Obviously, I know there's the Awkward Silences podcast, but please, yeah, share if there's <laughs> any places that, you know, my, our audience could follow your work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we are at user interviews on Twitter. JH, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, JH Forster. Cool. I'm at Aaron H. May. Um, we're user interviews. You know, we're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn. Um, and if you check out user interviews slash awkward, you can get three free participants there if, if that's of interest. So check us out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I got to say, it, it has been so fun to work with you guys, uh, both on this podcast and outside of it. Uh, but yeah, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you guys for your time. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah, thanks yeah, for having do. us. Thanks for having us. That was Aaron and JH from Awkward Silences by User Interviews. As they mentioned, there are loads of resources, both on the User Interviews website and on the Nielsen Norman Group website. And in fact, I just published an article on how to recruit and screen research participants, which I've linked in the show notes. So if you're about to embark on a research study and you don't know where to start, check out the links in our show notes. Also, we have a virtual five-day qualitative research series running from April 4th to 8th, where you can sharpen your qualitative research skills. Or if the two half-day format is more your cup of tea, then our next conference is January 8th through 21. To find articles, videos, and learning opportunities like these, check out nngroup.com. That's N-N-G-R-O-U-P.com. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Therese Fessenden, and all editing and post-production is by Jonas Zellner. But most importantly, these episodes are only possible with your support. So if you want to continue to support us and the work that we do, please hit subscribe. And if you can, please leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening today, and we wish you a belated Happy New Year. Until next time, remember, keep it simple.